Hey y'all, thanks so much for tuning in. You are listening to the Crude Audacity Podcast, the podcast that talks shop shit and of course all things strategy with oil patch influencers. I'm Katherine Mills and today is our 710 oil field news segment. Now this is the segment of the Crude Audacity that addresses all current events directly impacting the patch. Today our topic is risk management, aka hedging. And with the rise of social media within our industry, Everyone is out there declaring themselves an oil field analyst. So to skip the nonsense and get straight down to brass tacks, I connected with the team over at Aegis. That would be Matt Marshall and Rob Via, and we address price risk management throughout the operators, the service side, gas assets, oil assets, tech, and even private equity. It's a new world out there and you need to know how to protect yourself. So enjoy this listen. Thank you so much for taking the time. Before you go, go ahead and hit that little subscribe button for me down in the corner there. That way you can stay up to date on all things oil field and of course all things the crude audacity. And then leave us some thoughts in the comments. Let us know what you liked, what you didn't like, any other questions you have for Matt or Rob. And on Apple Podcast, if you could rate, review, and subscribe, we would greatly appreciate it. Otherwise, sit back, enjoy, and remember, give them hell. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for joining in today. You are tuned into the 710 Oil Field segment. Now, this is the segment of the Crude Audacity podcast, where we talk about current events directly impacting the oil patch. Today, I am joined by the team at Aegis Energy Risk. That would be Rob Via, who is VP of the Rockies, and Matt Marshall, who is the Director of Market Analytics. Now, today, guys, everyone is interested in what's happening across the patch. Uh, every day is a new day in 2020, and it's been quite a roller coaster. So we will be addressing the new price risk regime and how companies across the patch can navigate this new form of volatility. So to kick us off, Rob and Matt, thank you so much for joining today. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. <laughs> Are y'all ready for this? <laughs> Uh, you know, after the last couple of months, I think we're ready for anything. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, can y'all kick us off by sort of explaining who you are, who is Aegis, and really where you fall in the spectrum that is the oil field? Yeah, um, I'll take that one, Matt. So we are a uh, full-service financial hedge advisor, uh, and we work with E&P, upstream E&P companies, helping them uh, around market fundamentals, uh, hedge strategy, uh, trade execution, uh, all the back office work around the hedge portfolio as well. Um, just kind of a quick snippet here on, uh, on our scale. We work with just under 200 E&P entities. We, uh, we manage about, uh, I guess it's a little over 3 million BOE a day of hedgeable volumes across the client base. And so and one of the things that I think is important to note with that is it just uh, gives us kind of some unique insight into the market. Uh, Arms Matt and his team with um, you know some uh, unique insights that help build our view. And Matt, you know, feel free to to jump in on that as well. Yeah, and it's a it's a broad type. We work with the producers of every size: public, private, private equity backed. Uh, some PE who, sponsors as well that we work directly with as well. Yep. So. Yeah, everywhere from 200 barrels a day up to, what do you call it, you know, 200,000 barrels I think 350,000 BOE a day is our largest client. So, so really runs yeah. run, runs the gamut. I mean, it's pretty much yeah. everybody other than kind of the, the super majors, um, you know, it really falls within our range. 
Yeah, so and, and today we're have... really seeing sort of this the I hate to use the word triage, but we are seeing adjustments and pivots and you know, just like where does our company go from here type renegotiation strategies. So you're seeing that from the mom and pop up to the larger midstreams, and I'm sure y'all are following some of our super majors. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, there has been, um, you know, there it was such a change in, um, in in these companies' position going back to like this winter when prices were, you know, over $60 down to just in the course of just days being in the 30s and then dipping down into record-setting negative prices. Like that completely changes the way you have to look at the risk of your firm. And uh, it's changed the way people uh, trade, uh, the way they, they put on hedges, the way they change their portfolio with res respect to what they plan to produce mm -hmm. in the next year. Uh, just it changes all over the place. And yeah, the, the little guys, the bigger guys, they all have unique unique needs. But it's, it's, uh, it's definitely been a lot of jostling and taking a new look at your hedging portfolio to make sure you're prepared. And, you and, said and that luckily, so much better than uh, I did. <laughs> we've said it a few times. Yeah, it's, it's been mentioned just a time time or two. But uh, and and you know, luckily across our client base, we've done our job and and you know helped kind of mitigate the risk mm -hmm. with a black swan event like what we've seen here and kind of coming in and and so luckily our clients were in more of a unique position to take advantage of that. Um, you know, if you. I don't know if that's the right word to really say, but, you know, with adjustments on, on positions, crystallizing gains, you know, there were some, some unique opportunities. Um, but, you know, our clients were, I think what Matt, it was about 78% hedged for, uh, for this year when things really went sideways. And so, you know, a lot of, a lot of protection there. Good yeah, planning Catherine. on your part. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's the thing. As a hedge advisor, if you do your job well, maybe you do your your clients do better, and you don't you yourself don't have as many financial problems. But uh, you know what was interesting is that you know that that we our clients were hedged quite a bit, and they were hedged at a fairly high price. And I think that's something that's missed in the industry, mm -hmm. where there was a lot of uh, doomsday talk about what the EMP the upstream industry was going to look like later this year after the big price drops. And what I think what a lot of people don't realize is that there was quite a bit of hedging by private companies who are not reporting. They don't have 10Ks and 10Qs to tell you exactly what their hedge positions were. Mm -hmm. And they were doing very well. And I think there's emerging like the haves and the have-nots. The haves who had a diligent, aggressive, uh, you know, uh, systematic hedge plan, and they took advantage of $60 prices when they could get it. And then you have some who uh, did not have their plan together, and they're in a little, a little different situation right now. Mm -hmm. So, Rob, you're up here in Denver with me. Matt, I know yep. you're down in Texas. Um, oil here is not oil there. The environment, the uh, just everything from East Coast to West Coast. So can y'all kind of shed some light on what you're noticing? What's happening out in the Marcellus? How does the Bakken feel? I mean, I know how Denver feels. So, Rob, I'm going to let you take that because, again, you're much more eloquent than I am. And then how is Texas, like, how's Houston compared to West Texas? How, what's, what are y'all noticing? What's the feel? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I certainly would agree that, that it's been an interesting time here in Denver, um, you know, and, and there's still still some companies out there doing good things and, and mm -hmm. you know, that we're well positioned and, and or are in a position to kind of take advantage of some of the things that, that are going to be the windfalls of this, um, you know, on the A&D front, things of that nature. But, um, you know, some of it is also just really on 
um, the focuses regionally for some of these players and, and, you know, where there's opportunities, you know, I mean, you mentioned like the Marcellus, you know, it's a little bit of a different landscape on the gas side than it is mm-hmm. for some of the crude players. Um, but also what that means and, you know, taking advantage of some things on basis hedging and, and um, you know, I'll let Matt, take that piece of it because he's the technical guy on uh, on some of those opportunities but you know it, it does feel a little bit different regionally with some of the, the clients mm-hmm. that we're dealing with Matt I mean what do you have to add to that yeah that's the way I would frame it too is that you know Houston they, he just has such a, a geographical footprint that uh, you know it's really about where not necessarily where your your corporate offices are but where your acreage is and uh, we see you know a lot of uh, concern among the oil or the rich gas producers and then the drier gas producers are out there going okay well what's going to happen here exactly. I mean so see, yeah, <laughs> is this is 2021 going to be the year yeah and uh, I mean we can go into it a little bit later but like there's some really good reasons to be optimistic about natural gas prices next year and maybe into 2022 and uh, you know even Ooh. if oil is capped by you know has a, has a price cap on top of it depending on what OPEC does and how fast demand returns natural gas has got a really good chance and I think the gas our, our gas clients are uh, really paying close attention trying to figure out hey if we get up to 275 three dollars at what point do I pull the trigger and add a lot of hedges and say hey this is a uh, I can make some good money here. It, it's $3. also been interesting. It's been interesting too that I will say I've heard from a lot of our gas weighted clients. Um, you know, specifically those that are up in um, Appalachia and up mm-hmm. in the Northeast that they're they're wanting to know what's going on with crude. You know, you've seen yeah. that that tie in together now, and and there's been you know with shut ins and associated gas and everything. Um, you know, there's. Uh, it's just, it's, I've, that's the first time that I've kind of seen that out of the gas heavy clients. And, and like I say, specifically some of the Marcellus Utica players that have been saying, okay, well, we're trying to figure out the supply side with crude and, and you know, what's going yeah. on there and a lot more interest than I had ever heard out of. Them. Yeah. And, it, and it's not just a passing interest either. Like you could chart mm-hmm. like cal- calendar 2021 natural gas prices against the front month crude oil. And what you saw over the last you know, two or three months, uh, whenever oil prices started going down, is a very strong negative relationship, negative uh, uh, negative correlation between gas and crude. And so as crude goes down, gas goes up. Yeah. Because the farther that, that oil falls, that means you get less development in associated gas. It means you get, NGL prices usually come with crude a little bit. So you get less investment in, uh, in uh, rich gas. And that means there's just going to be less gas supply available. And, and when oil prices went back up, what had happened to natural gas? come back down. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, they're watching it for just for not just for interest, but like for opportunity, because if you see oil prices dip again, I guarantee you, uh, at least the, the Aegis clients, that you'll have gas producers out there looking for opportunity, looking to, uh, to take some risk off. Well, heck yeah. I love hearing that. So, you know, we have seen the social media movement hit our industry and no one quite knows what to do about it. But ever since prices went negative, we have also seen the rise in self-proclaimed oil field analysts. And I appreciate a good conspiracy theory as much as the next person. So let's just jump into it. Um, what was the feeling around y'all's office the day we just kept getting more and more negative? Because I happened to be downtown and I saw absolute panic. Nobody knew how to interpret it. And people expected like below $10. They expected there were some calls for zero, but negative? Yeah. 
Yeah, there's there's a lot going on on our internal teams chat. I know it was like I, I think that that morning I was on a uh, an intro pitch or something, and and I kept seeing the little thing pop up in the, yeah. the bottom corner, and and our COO Justin was like just just ticking off the numbers and he's like, Oh my gosh, like, you know, and so it's certainly a surprise, but um, you know, and I'll let Matt speak to this a little bit more because he really was, was front facing with the client base. But um, as you can imagine, I mean, a lot of inbound stuff coming from the clients and a yeah. lot of, you know, kind of having to talk off the ledge a little yeah. bit, but a happy was, face up front yeah. and then a text to your boss going, what the heck? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, there, there were some nuances to all of that though, too, that, you know, and, and that's our job. Our job, is to, to, you know, understand the process with it, but also, you know, hey, we're, we're ready for ebbs and flows in this, this market and mm -hmm. in this space. And, and um, so there's a lot of, a lot of inbound things coming in with the clients. Like I say, I'll let Matt talk a little bit yeah. more on that. It was, it was concern. Um, <laughs> you, know, the, you know, the first question was interesting is that um, it, you see futures do what it did. So that was on April 20th, I believe. And that was the May contract going to minus 37 or whatever the number was. It even, exact number doesn't even matter this anymore. But uh, I think there was a lot of uh, education that we were having to do to talk about what the, our client's exposure actually was because mm -hmm. most producers don't get the futures price. That's not, that's not the price they get. And so even if it had settled, that May contract had settled negative, that doesn't mean that a producer would have gotten that price. What they usually get is a, is a, is a calendar month average. So it's the average of whatever that prompt month oil, mm -hmm. oil futures price was for that calendar month. And so that was just for, there was uh, I think 21 or 22 business days during that month. So that was just like one twenty-second of their price. So that was part of it was making sure that, Hey, I know you're worried about this and you should be because this is probably going to be ongoing weakness in crude oil prices, but also realize that first of all, you're well hedged. Mm -hmm. uh, and second, uh, that is just one day of the calculation. Yeah, well, that's something I kind of noticed. As you know, uh, my questions for you guys today are not mine originally. I asked operators across the United States kind of what they wanted to know. And what I was noticing is there is a different interpretation of what it means to be hedged or well hedged yeah. uh, from, from every different shop. So when y'all go in and you're kind of talking to the new guys and getting them up to speed. Can you give us a little bit of your spiel and helping people to understand? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to do that. Rob, you want me to run with that just a little bit? Yeah, yeah, I sure. Mean, it, go, yeah, it's, it, it, it's basic. I mean, we say hedging just to make sure that we understand what we're saying. What, what you're using is you're using prices that are in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, they're on the forward curve. They're not the day-to-day -day prices, spot prices. They're, they're in the future. They're financially settled, which means they're just they're settled by cash take, uh, changing hands. And what you're doing is you're making a choice of like, would do I want to take the price for say 2021, how it's being traded right now? Would I prefer to take that price right now and lock it in? That's what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, there are different. That's the basics of it. That's how you put on swaps. It's the basic type of hedge. And the way the math works out is that if I look out into the future and I see that next year is trading at like say forty-one dollars today, I can make the choice: Do I want to take forty-one dollars for next year, or would I prefer to, in my mind, speculate and to and to wait for a higher price? Yeah. That's what hedging is. Now you can get into more complicated things where I can say I would like to use options. And the way you use options, you say, I am willing to trade the opportunity to participate in prices if they go higher 
if I'm able to get an insurance contract to make sure that I'm protected if prices go lower. And the, you know, it's called a costless caller. Uh, there's other mm -hmm. things you can do. You can just go out outright and buy the insurance and prices go lower. But that's what you're doing. As you're looking out to forward prices, you can talk to Aegis to find out what they, were, what they are at any given time, and you can make the choice, do I want that price or do I want to wait? That's what hedging is. And I think that, that one of the things, and, and you know, uh, Matt, you may want to pull up the, uh, the, the pyramid because I think this kind of ties in, but it's also different for uh, each scenario is going to be different, right? And again, kind of getting back to like our scale, working with, you know, almost 200 E&P entities that, that run the gamut of small family office up to large publics, mm -hmm. you know, their, their goals, objectives, risk tolerances, you know, all of those nuances are going to be different um, and each case but you know and, and so we kind of look at it in this this pyramid of of um you know wh what do you want to achieve you know out of the strategy here and you kind of have to go with each base before you move up to the to the next level but right. for some clients you know i mean there's family offices that you know interest payments may not not uh, be there for them because they may not have ever carried debt right and that's one of you know, debt is one of the things that that really you know there can be hedge requirements that come along with that and that's going to be one of the big factors on where we start with looking at how do we build the hedge strategy here um, but yeah, I mean, if it's a, a debt-free company, you know, you're moving up and, and, you know, maybe that's going to change the strategy on, okay, how much do we hedge in terms of percentages of PDP? Um, how long out and how far out do we, do we hedge to the tenors on the trades as well as what structures do we use swaps? Do we use callers? Um, you know, do we do just some, some single option structures? Um, and so uh, there's, there's a wide variety of factors that can kind of go into that. And that's one of the big things on the front end when we're working with the new new clients and especially those that that may not be as well versed in the world of hedging um you know how do we get down to kind of the the get to the basics on you know what do we need to achieve from the hedge strategy and, and matt i mean if you want to talk a little bit about the the structure fundamentals here Free to yeah, add you, know, you know, and something Catherine said I thought was really like insightful because whoever you're talking to on the operator side, I think they're thinking about it right. Is uh, you know, how do you how do you define hedging? How do you know if you're doing enough? How much? How yep. do you know if you're doing too much? And those are those are really tough questions that uh, you have because sometimes it, the bank makes it simple for you. Sometimes you have debt. And the bank says you must hedge at least say you know, fifty percent of uh, of your expected production, or maybe it's seventy five percent of what you uh, your PDP, so your the the amount of production that you would uh, you would have if you didn't drill another well. But, you know, sometimes you have that. Sometimes you have internal restrictions. Uh, there are times when it's just purely discretionary. And uh, then it becomes a, uh, I really think it's a financial statement analysis, analysis thing. It's saying that, uh, hey, what type of price do I really need if I am, uh, need to make sure that I'm solvent, that I can make those interest payments? Or maybe you're in, in a much better situation and it's, hey, what's, what, what price do I need if I want to be able to grow by 5% this year? And that's why it varies uh, for each company. You know, I had a I really like eye-opening conversation with a, with a CEO. Uh, it produced about 100,000 barrels a day. And it was back this winter, I think it was actually November last year. And he's like, you know, if, if prices go to 60, he's like, I can accomplish all my goals next year. 
I can do that. Those the few acquisitions I have in mind. Uh, I can you know pay all my bills. I can have, give it the you know uh, we can do stock buyback. And and it was it was like why should I, he asked me why should I not hedge at sixty dollars? Like man, I have no idea. Like that is <laughs> that's exactly the situation you hope to be in. Is like you've yeah. identified the triggers, the thresholds of prices that you need to meet to meet your goal. You've identified the goal, and now all you got to do is put together a plan. Mm-hmm. Do y'all find it interesting that this conversation is becoming more, more and more common now and wasn't uh, in better times that yeah. being 50 and above? I mean, I just Such find it point. so, you know, why didn't we think of it then? Why, why are younger engineers not being taught this? Why, why, why is there such a disconnect between the market we play in and the operators within it and even the, the service side of our sector? Yeah, you know, some of these things, it's not – Whenever you have a big price movement down, like when price, like you think about like in 2019, where prices for WTI were hovering around 52 to 58 dollars, mm-hmm. and, and I'll stop sharing this for a second, so you don't have to stare at my PowerPoint. But uh, you know, the prices were hanging around like 52 to 58 dollars, and I think you saw that you, the prices would go up and bounce off of 52, and they would kind of triple trickle down and get to 52, and then you know it's 58, 52, and I think it was it's hard to imagine what might be a catalyst that would knock us out of that range, like what type of bullish or bearish thing could come along, and I think there was a lot. Of thoughts that, hey, over the last couple of years, the amount of, of oil in storage throughout the world, OPE has been has been falling. The amount of supply has been falling uh, in. in that's being in inventories, OPEC is systematically reducing its production and propping this market up. And if we get any sort of like supply disruption, you can see prices go super high. Yeah. Um, but I think what people don't realize is that the uh, in this industry, I think we tend to be very optimistic and we 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 hope for. Uh, that prices would stay elevated, but sometimes we, we miss some of the big warning signs. And here's what I'd say. The big thing that happened was at first this year was not COVID-19. No. The big thing that happened was the OPEC meeting in the first week of March where they, the, the deal finally fell apart. They couldn't get on the same page and they said, we're going we're gonna to produce at maximum rates for April and May. Uh-huh. That's what started this. People mm-hmm. forget that. And I got some, so this is the, the good news, bad news portion. The good news is that OPEC is back on track with a new policy and they've been reducing production. The good news is that the market has responded to price and the production this year is likely to decline. The bad news is we're kind of right back in the same situation we were mm-hmm. where OPEC is holding back about 10 million barrels a day. Maybe it's seven, but it's enough to where if they, the deal were to break apart again, that's a lot of supply coming into this market all at once. Well, you know, Matt, you say that, but there are some that argue that the black swan events was just the icing on the cake. We have been yeah. in this problem since, you know, the midway boom of the shale market, and that's who's hurting the most. And everyone who has built their, you know, their exit strategy and their company and their, <laughs> I guess, their forecast around uh, fracking and anything that you can like truly frack. Uh, those are the guys that are suffering. So did, was it really the, the two black swan events being COVID and the Russia-Saudi feud? Or did we sort of start shooting ourselves in the foot a little while ago? I'd say even before these things happened. So you had, um, you had U.S.-Saudi. Then you had early emergence of COVID-19 with China. And then you had widespread, uh, widespread COVID-19. And those three things were the big shocks that we mm-hmm. got. Uh, but yes, I, the, we had... The, the market, what had, what, in my opinion, what happened was we had a price that had been artificially built up by OPEC action. And uh, it's, it's hard to blame the industry for overreaching whenever you had, you know, two years of a very, what I thought was a somewhat coherent uh, uh, 
reliable uh, policy from OPEC that kept production offline. Uh, if, if, if OPEC had not been so uh, disciplined with that strategy over the last two years, I think you would have seen er prices lower earlier and you would have seen the U.S. shale industry not grow as fast and the provider of capital not being as willing to jump in and the market probably would have been a little bit healthier. But, um, you know, uh, I would say that for those who had been watching these issues closely, there were very easy ways to mitigate all those risks that we just talked about. And fortunately, I think our clients uh, were, were able to do that. We're able to, uh, you know, uh, make it past the worst, which I think we've seen in the last couple of months. Well, it sounds like it because your clients are some of the only ones that are not, uh, they haven't graduated to zombie status yet, as I like to say. <laughs> so one of the things that everyone was plain out asking is, where is the demand for demand? We're seeing the world open back up slowly but surely. There are some places that did not really close at all. And yet, you know, on LinkedIn, which is our primary platform as an industry right now, we're seeing cheers when we cross $40 by like five cents. We are seeing, you know, people praising the 1.4 million barrel increase from like last week that we still had arguably somewhere between a 38% to a 42% decline in demand on a global scale. Where is the demand for demand? I don't think there's such thing as a V-shaped recovery in the oil and gas sector or in the energy sector. Yeah, which may not be, we, we may have entered a new phase where demand doesn't look like it did before. Yeah. Does it return? Yeah, uh, well, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of different ways of looking at this. And what we have to remember is that it's not just a domestic issue. You know, it, it's international, too. And uh, when you start looking at international uh, real-time metrics of, of petroleum demand, it gets really tough. But here's some things that we've seen just in uh, like announcements from China. It looks like China is importing oil at a rate that's comparable to where it was before COVID. Um, you can see that their refineries are running very hard, especially the independent ones. Mm -hmm. uh, they were early on to start ramping up and to try to serve the demand that had been uh, not served there for the last couple of months. They're um, fighting the petrodollar. Come on now. Yeah. Well, and then, and then what I'd say about uh, the market is telling us things too. Like there are ways to, to see in the forward curves and see how prices are trading that will tell you if demand's coming back. And a key one is the shape of the Brent curve. So Brent, you know, light, sweet, crude, internationally traded. Uh, it's delivered, you know, basically on the water. So it serves as kind of a, a international trade uh, benchmark. And so that forward curve has, uh, it shifted from at the worst, it was upward sloping. So it was contango, meaning that the near-term contracts and near-term demand for Brent crude was apparently a lot less and it was oversupplied than if you just looked a month or two down the road and you realized that prices were quite a bit higher, demand was apparently forecast to be coming back and there was expected to be less supply in the market. And so that severe upward slope in, uh, in the forward curve, and I can show you on a chart if, you, if that would make more sense. Oh, yes, that, please. <laughs> yeah, so the, uh, I just happened to have one. Oh, wow. Uh, look here. Go. It's not Brent, but it's, it's WTI, and it'll show us a, a lot of the same kind of thing. We so like our West Texas Intermediate, don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> it'll do. 
So what, what this chart shows is across time, different parts of the WTI forward curve. And, you know, WTI okay. to Brent, you know, that, that the price spread or price difference between the two, it varies from time to time, but it stays fairly consistent. Uh, so you, we can use this as a proxy for what happened to Brent, what happened internationally. So these are different parts of the forward curve. And so you can see this, you know, this dark blue right here. I would really like to use my old pen. There you go. This dark blue right here, that's the prompt month. So that's the most nearby contract. Okay. And the rest of them are different parts of different strips in the forward curve. So for example, the gray one is Cal 21. That's calendar year 2021. Uh, the blue is Cal 22. Uh, and right now, uh, you can see that all those prices have really coalesced to around $40, $41. Okay? So that means that the forward curve is very flat. And then no matter where you look, it's like $40 to $42. Yeah. Contrast that to where it was, say, early in the year when we had a crude go over 60, and you had the front month price get more expensive than the rest of the curve. So that means that there was more de more net demand for near-term crude, crude that you can get your hands on really quick. Uh, there's a lot of demand for that, and it was pulling up prices. Okay, okay. remember the negative price day? Who doesn't? Yeah. Everyone All does. Right. <laughs> so on that day and the days around it, you can see that near-term prices for crude were many dollars cheaper than the rest of 2020 and the back of the curve. Yes. All right. So what happens there is you start looking for ways to store the crude because you look and you say, well, I could, I could sell crude right now for uh, 15 bucks, but if I, if I could somehow wait for a year, I could sell it for 30. And so you had people say, and, it, and it, it, you don't do that. You don't wait a year to sell crude, but you might wait a month. And the way you do that is you go buy, you go rent a tanker. You go get a dirty tanker, get it on the water, you put crude in it and you say, I'm just going to hold it until next month. And so that's what happens whenever near-term prices are cheaper than the rest of the curve. Well, mm -hmm. what happened in the last couple of days? You see that, that number right there, that, that dark blue number? Is that it the became, $40.44? <laughs> yep. And what happened? I say it got all squished. So the yep. whole curve became about the same price. In the Brent market, in the international market, near-term prices actually went just a little bit more expensive than the next month's which means that now yeah, that's a big sign that things are recovering because people are, are bidding up. They're raising that price. They're, 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 they're looking for oil right now. And, the, um, and that's also a sign that tells you that people don't want to store oil in offshore tankers either. Uh, very good sign. So when you talk about the, the recovery of demand, there are some things in the market that say, yes, demand is coming back. It's industry mm -hmm. stats, it's government stats, but the market itself is telling you that things have cleaned up. And that's a big reason why you see WTI, Brent, all these things that are raising up over $40. So a lot of people use the filling up of SPR as their sort of indicator with what's going to happen next. But that yeah. fluctuates constantly. And there are even some that are looking, you know, old salt domes to store crude until, <laughs> until that next year, which, like you said, wouldn't necessarily yeah. recommend. But there is that discussion of what can we do to put it away to keep it off the market. So what do you what are your thoughts on people utilizing that as sort of their benchmark uh well it, it's it's another good one uh the spr is a little different because there's only a few people who can use spr and i don't know how much it costs them to put that into storage but um we we can't say it's a representative sample of the market because there's okay. only a few people who get to participate uh, but here's what I would say, like a lot of our, we had clients who uh, were actively looking for empty tanks on leases, like uh -huh. during this period of time right here, uh, actively looking for any spare tanks they could find, uh, old unused ones to be able to take oil off a pipeline uh -huh. on a truck to their lease, put it in the tank, wait a few months, 
sell it back into the market. And there are hedges that you can do to take advantage of that. And uh, that's what they were looking to do. And it was more than one client and they, yeah. they were looking for anywhere they could. And that to me was a great indicator. Uh, it was showing that, uh, hey, there's, 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 there's things, there's, there are things afoot to help solve this problem. And I bet you there's a thousand of the stories just like that of people finding places to put crude to avoid overwhelming the system back then. Well, hopefully it's a part of my inheritance strategy. We'll find out. Um, but then we're, what we're also seeing is that at the current prices, the majority of the energy sector, that being oil and gas, is not profitable. So how do you hedge when you are not in a profitable uh, segment of your industry? And then we even have companies that they're, you know, cash flow negative, but they have such a steady and consistent stream, thank you, conventionals that they can tell you exactly where they're going to be in the next year and a half. And with so many people honestly giving up on 2020, and I advise people not to stop thinking we've still got six months left of it, <laughs> but everybody is like wishing ahead for Q2 21 or 2021. And what is your advice? What is your strategy? If you've got a client coming in and saying, you know what, 2020, cancel culture. I'm out. Let's get into 2021. By the way, we're still cash flow negative. Yeah. So once again, it goes back to like individual companies because, you know, I can think of one client in particular, uh, you know, large volume out in the Permian Basin and, uh, you know, their lifting costs are close to $11. And so for, for, for wells that have already been drilled and are already flowing, um, and they weren't planning on drilling any new wells in the near term. Lucky them. <laughs> so, uh, so you know, for them, you know, eleven dollars, you can still you can still make money and keep the lights on. And I'd go back to this chart, and uh, you know, when you say you know not profitable, there's different ways to to define profitability. Well, I yes. Mean, uh, <laughs> and uh, well, it's sometimes you can get creative with it, but you know, on this chart, you can think about well, profitability. I could draw a line right here, and I could say that you know, if you are able to go higher in this pyramid than this, then you're creating free cash flow. Okay. okay? But that doesn't mean that you're technically losing money if you are having to settle for goals that are lower than that line. Because mm -hmm. it's, it's possible that you do have enough money, you are creating enough cash to at least invest in your existing assets to keep them running. Um, so like your question is, you know, somebody comes to us and says, hey, I can't make money at these prices. What do I do? Yeah. Um, well, there, there are, uh, the first thing I would say is, okay, let's take a look at your existing hedge book um, and figure out what we can do. No, and I'm serious here because there, uh, what happened over the last couple of months is you put on these hedges and then when prices go down, they're an asset. They're worth money. Yeah. yeah. So for example, if I put on a, like our average uh, swap value or so we were struck at $59 for 2020, like before when we were going into this, like, like going back into March, for the rest of 2020, our average swap that our clients had on was $59. Mm -hmm. So when prices fell to like fairly quickly fell to like $39, that swap is worth $20 a barrel. So ever, however much you had, you've got this theoretical pot of money that you could deploy in, in a lot of different ways. And that could mean that you use it for, you know, emergency rainy day fund to be able to satisfy some of your bills that you have to pay right now. It could mean that you pay down debt. It could mean that you take some of that money and push it down the road to next mm -hmm. year to give yourself some support there. You can move your hedges around. And that's exactly what we do is if you, if you do have hedges that are worth money right now, they're an asset. We figure out how to help, how to help you readjust that portfolio to make it meet your needs. Now, if somebody just comes in and says, I don't have a hedge, a hedge program, program right now and I can't make money at these prices, 
that that's a much more difficult situation. When yeah. the bank is no longer confident in the market, what what strategy is there to secure a hedging strategy, so to speak? Well, I mean, on the A and D side and some of those those aspects with it, yeah, I mean, I would say it, it's what we're seeing right now. You know, the guys that are looking on that side are typically coming from a space where they're not you know, they're either new entrants, meaning like it's new capital that they're coming in with. And so that kind of changes some of this, like it kind of on, on the pyramid here cuts the bottom part portion of this off because there's new companies. And so it's a little bit different though, because those guys are going to be in a healthier position. But what is interesting and how it, it um, goes into the hedge programs for some of those companies that are coming with this is that, and I think that this is one of the things that goes to your point on just kind of the new, new uh, uh, operating landscape that we're yeah. in is that structures on deals have changed quite a bit. Um, whether that's, you know, coming in with new A and D opportunities, a lot of these guys are looking at production buys and securitizing assets yes. and doing um, distribution models. And so it's been interesting from, you know, me as a BD guy, seeing what's kind of coming in, the new opportunities that have come in in this um, environment have been a lot of the guys that are like, you know, like the, the securitization deals or distribution models are in intriguing because there's a ton of hedging that you do right out of the gate on that. And that would be kind of, you know, that they're just starting at that top tier of the pyramid right there. Right. And, and so uh, I think that there's, it's been great for us because we can add a lot of value in that, in that we can help, um, you know, help them efficiently, effectively, and swiftly execute on a strategy like that, help save them money in getting them best pricing, you know, mm -hmm. on the hedges. But it's just, it's, I, I think that, it says something to kind of the capital that's coming into the space and how people are, are taking a unique perspective on how to structure deals more so than kind of the, the previous, um, you know, a lot of private equity capital that was in there looking yeah. to build a position out, you know, de develop it out to a minimal degree and looking to flip that to some of the larger players. Um, you know, now it's kind of, turn more that there's consolidation and so as a part of consolidation um, there's consolidation of assets right and so in some of the mergers that we've seen um, you know some of the the larger publics that's led to acquisition opportunities for some of these guys that you know maybe they're looking at yeah I was talking with a, a team that they had done a few successful runs of flipping some assets with private equity capital and now they're putting their own capital together and they're doing kind of a they're going out and they're um, acquiring some conventional assets um, conventional gas assets but they're going to do a kind of a securitization deal on it and uh, it's just it's interesting you know seeing the, yeah. the different structures that are coming up with what is the future of NGLs I mean Ooh. should people start shifting in that realm I mean there's so Ooh. much happening we're seeing locations being built ports being built everyone wants this it's an international conversation like should people start throwing their money towards NGLs? Oh man. Okay. You're going to have to extend this podcast by an hour because I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm getting excited. NGLs are a very complicated set of, uh, of, of commodities. And I love talking about them because they're influenced by natural gas. They're influenced by crude oil. They're influenced by plastics. Like it, it, they, mm -hmm. they all, and they, they, they competed against each other. 
And yeah. of course, our, our clients you know, produce oil and gas. And so the ones that produce rich gas or associated gas tend to have a lot of NGL content. And we hedge them quite a bit. Um, what I'd say about the, the future of NGLs is the last couple of years, and you, you have to look at them individually. The last couple of years, there's been always this promise that there's more demand coming. Like yes. among ethane, there's a lot of uh, olefins plants. So these are ethylene plants. So they're often called steam crackers. And, and they've been designed to take in cheap ethane and make ethylene out of it, mm-hmm. which then you can make go go make plastic out of and it's like these crackers are take take forever to get built and like you see that the one's supposed to be finished by you know the first part of 2019 2019 goes by it doesn't get it doesn't get finished mm-hmm. and finally it gets it happens in 2020 well it just so happens that uh, all those crackers that had been planned and got pushed back they tended to come online all at the same time like right at the end of last year beginning of this year and that happened at a just a, so we got all this demand at the same time what did you have happen with associated gas whenever oil prices went down shut-ins mm-hmm and it also yeah, looks everyone's like, new favorite topic shut in <laughs> yeah well when you shut in when you shut in oil you shut in the associated gas which means you shut in the ngl supply NGL, too so. uh-huh so you had all this demand coming and then suddenly you had this sh- this supply shock and ethane prices went nuts they they went they they went up we have some models that show like key levels of resistance of where ethane is uh where ethane is rejected at processing plants throughout the country and uh it's like the almost the whole country went in the money to where they were trying to recover as much ethane as they could uh, and in the short term those prices are still elevated and it's a great chance to be able to take off some risk yeah, and that's then, something i know no we've been busy with clients on on yeah. the ngl front oh do yeah, tell and then, and then <laughs> Yeah, just yeah, uh, with the opportunity to, to Matt's point. I mean, it right. just uh, these are those types of things that that you know. Again, Matt and his team watching the market and and you know looking at the trends and seeing where there's some opportunities and then relaying that to our clients. But I know that you know I was looking through uh, some of the content they put out last week and and you know the trader corner, which is um, you know some of the technical not factors, but technical aspects that our trade desk kind of coordinates in with Matt and his team and mm-hmm. NGLs have been a big topic and, and something that I know that uh, we've been addressing pretty frequently. That's funny so you-, you say that because I'm not seeing that as a, as such a prominent topic as you, as I would think you would be discussing right now, right. you know, especially like on the, the boards that is LinkedIn. And I know I keep going back to it, but that's where everyone seems to have found their voice these days and just won't stop talking. So, you know, <laughs> why isn't that being addressed more? I mean, I think uh, I'll start and then I'll let okay. Matt finish. I think that part of that is just, just that, that, that stream itself, that, you know, you look at it and what it, it means into the overall revenue for these mm-hmm. companies and it's just always kind of taken a back seat. And so I think that it just doesn't have the allure that the topics of, you know, especially with a volatile market in crude and the pricing that we've seen there, you know, that's front and center. And and I think that NGLs have just always kind of been, like I say, taking a back seat to that. And and that's why you don't hear about it as much. But it sounds yeah. like Matt is telling us that NGLs should be like the primary child. <laughs> Oh no no no! I can't go that far. I, I love NGLs, but I can't I can't go that far. They they, they are they're, they're treated almost as you know byproducts in a lot of cases yeah. because yes. if you're in a rich gas play, then chances are you're getting most of your revenue from gas. If you're in oil play, you're getting most of your revenue revenue from oil. Both of them will make NGLs. It's just a lower part of your. It's a, it's a less material part of your revenue. Correct. But the the other reason is they don't get a lot of attention is you know some people don't don't even account for them uh, directly, and so they they just account for their oil and their gas and they mm-hmm. skip their NGLs, but 
I would say, and the other thing is that they're illiquid, so they don't have as many um, you know, buyers and sellers financially, and so they're more difficult to trade, but not for us. I mean, we've got, we've got just about every, every counterparty you can imagine that uh, it trades in GLs. We have good relationships with them. So that's the other thing. And the other thing is like, you know, there's, there aren't many people who understand them, really. Um, there's about, you know, there's probably 10 NGL analysts in the world, and you're talking to one of them right now, so... <laughs> So what is the, what's the future hold for NGLs then? Because I know I stopped you a little earlier to pick on uh, Rob a little bit. But. <laughs> yeah, the future. Um, okay, so the near future, ethane prices are really elevated. And um, it, there's, I don't want to go into too much detail, but they're, <laughs> they're, they're, oh, I do want to go into detail, but yeah. I'm not going to. They're, they're, they're an elevated price when you compare them to other NGLs and natural gas. So it's a good time to hedge those. When you get out into 2021, ethane prices kind of collapse and they're not as expensive as I think they should be. The future of NGLs is really, um, I think that the ethane market is getting very healthy, a lot of new demand. The future of the NGLs is going to be, we don't really have any more domestic capacity to consume NGLs. We don't want any more propane. We don't want any more butane, not really, but the international world does. And so yeah. I think you're going to see expanded exports out of the U.S. Gulf Coast in particular to be able to more connect uh, our propane and butane prices to the world. That's going to be the key. Uh, and uh, also there are several projects on the Gulf Coast to expand export capacity in the next year. year Absolutely. Well, that's all very exciting. <laughs> As you guys know, I am an advocate for the small operators across the country, especially here in the Rockies. You hear about the big guys in the news all the time, and they have teams dedicated to this, right? The small guys don't. They kind of learn as they go. So hearing of these new like pivots, these new avenues of opportunity, I mean, when people are coming in, are are y'all helping sort of renegotiate or sort of re-strategize their path forward in, in those terms of these pivots? And if so, like, kind of give us some inside secret trader sauce. What's happening? <laughs> How are the little guys going to survive this? Yeah, um, with a lot of these that it's kind of these pivot deals that, that they're putting it together, it's really helping them with the strategy just straight out of the gate. Um, so it's not really like shifting strategy as much as, you know, some, some of these guys, uh, like I say, it's new deal structures too, right? And so they may be looking for some help on the hedging front because they just either haven't had to do it in the past. I mean, uh, like yep. one of these, actually this team in one of their iterations, they, well, they were telling me in two of their iterations previously, they were like, we never really even got to the point that we had, we had an ISDA in place to trade on one of the two, but we sold it out so quickly the A and D markets were so frothy at the time. They were able to flip, you know, a, a Permian deal so fast that they never even had to think about hedging. And now the hedging piece is like directly tied yeah. into their acquisition strategy. And so, 100%. you know, that's where uh, we certainly can add a lot of. Uh, I mean, that's our bread and butter, right? Is, is mm -hmm. coming in and working with these teams that, hey, I. I'm not the expert in this, but turn to the experts, you know, and, and, and the guys like Matt and, uh, you know, Karen on our trade desk and, you know, our team, they, they, we've got the expertise and, um, you know, can help kind of walk them through that. But it's definitely different for some of the smaller guys too, because um, a lot of them, like you say, they don't have the resources. They don't have a risk management team. Mm -hmm. They don't, you know, they're not in the market each and every day and looking and seeing where the, you know, where prices are at and, and then working with their counterparties to get 
fair pricing on it. And so there's just a lot of, there's a lot of pitfalls that can kind of happen when you don't have those resources. And we are basically a team to be plugged in. That's a, you know, a full risk management team and, and that's all that we do. That's all that we focus on. And so it is pretty fun to, to be able to work with some of these guys that, you know, you can see the real value right out of the gate. Um, but, you know, the strategies are different for the smaller guys. And, and Matt, I mean, t- talk a little bit about that, because I know that you've been kind of front facing with some of those recently. Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, like <laughs> smaller companies, are, I think, are the, the most rewarding to work with. Well, um, good. I like that. <laughs> Well, because you know, you're you're usually dealing with uh, sometimes a founder, uh, yes. or you're dealing directly with executive management. You know, a lot of the larger companies, the, the hedging decisions, or uh, you know, this is you know, re- you know relegated to a you know a a role player within the corporation. Um, with the smaller companies, you're dealing directly with the people who have the most skin in the game, and uh, and so I think it's very real for them. And uh, to us, it's a it's a it's a higher level of responsibility because we know that the the advice that we're giving is is likely to be considered. And uh, might be acted upon, and so we for the smaller companies we get a chance to learn more about what their goals really are. Um, I would say that they uh, you they tend to be more open and to trust us with more, and it's just it's really really fun thing to do. If I, I Rob's probably heard, heard me say this a hundred times, like the most fun thing I get to do is the counseling sessions. It's the it's the back and forth, the Socratic idea, like arguing back and forth with our customers, with our clients. He, and he always says it. that, and I I I I think probably in like eighty percent of those cases they don't believe him. That he's like, <laughs> I mean, I, I I've seen Matt. And Matt likes it when they push back, you know, because that's that is what does create dialogue and and where yeah. we get to understand the client's needs and everything. But like. Like I know that he hates it if we're on a call and like they're just kind of quiet and they don't they don't challenge him <laughs> on anything. But but you can kind of hear him like laugh a little bit when he's like, "Do you want to fight? Does anybody want to fight about that? Like, does, <laughs> does anybody want to challenge me?" And people are kind of like, mm, like, "Do you really want that?" But uh, bickering I mean, I, leads yeah. to the best resolutions, hands down. I yeah. mean, the oil field is becoming more collaborative, and if you're not willing to talk to your advisors, then why did you hire advisors? Hundred percent. We take that extremely seriously. (laughs) So Rob, you said something interesting about how y'all are advising on the investment. I know you kind of went into it a little bit from the uh, small operator side, which is definitely close to my heart. I don't want to see the, I don't want to see the death of small operators, especially in this pivot. But one thing that was coming up and this, this is my curveball. I'm sorry. Um, Private equity. Have y'all seen around the the social sphere that is oil and gas now the call for the death of private equity and this emergence of a new structure, a new model? And people are saying that, I mean, anywhere from like, you know, the Daily Post to the nightly news, people are saying that there's no longer a drive for investment in the energy sector. And it's kind of funny because they're including all energy alternatives and everything. um, But they forget that the health of the energy sector and most other industries across the globe begin and end with the oil uh, sector itself. So are you sort of seeing it more, um, I guess what they're called, like, independent private uh, investments back into the energy sector. I know you're probably involved. Are you seeing companies from different sectors crediting oil companies in any way to diversify their portfolios? Like what's happening with this new money? 
Yeah. Yes on all of those. And and okay. I'll start this and then then hand the baton off to Matt if he's got anything to add. But sure. a couple a couple things with what you said there. Um, you know, one, you know, there's there's always going to be a space for 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 private equity at the table in our industry. And and you know, when these blanket statements of the death of private equity in the industry as we know it. Uh, you know, I don't it makes necessarily. Makes a good podcast title. Yeah, right. I mean, and that's that's what some of those uh, those are. But um, you know, but just like everybody else, they're shifting too. And it's been interesting that that we have seen a lot of that here recently. In that we've had a lot more dealings directly with private equity, um, with the the sponsors themselves, and that you know, I think that just through through this downturn and and. Um, you know, they've always realized the necessity for hedging, but I think that they, a few in particular that we've seen of lately, of late, have been thinking, you know, hey, we want to set a policy across the board. We want to um, have the ability to, you know, quickly see what's our exposure across all of our investments. We also want to have a kind of sole source of what's our view on the market and and working, you know, with somebody that can give us a true objective kind of third party opinion and, and market view. And so where historically we were working more directly with the portfolio companies and the yes. management teams there themselves, we've seen a lot more inbound interest from private equity at the sponsor level, wanting to work directly with Matt and his team and our trade desk and say, let's create that common view across the portfolio. Let's create a hedge policy. And maybe that's not something that says everybody is going to hedge 75% of PDP out 24 months or whatever. You know, there's a range in there that they can work with, but that has been pretty interesting across our team, just seeing that and that the outreach and, um, you know, our beginning to work more hand in hand directly with the private equity sponsors. I will also say, you know, I've seen a lot, um, there, there's been a, quite a few teams that have gone out and they're kind of trying to do the fund model themselves, where it's like a hybrid of a, um, you know, management team as well as the PE sponsor, right? So a good yes. example of that is like Scout, right? That they have separate funds, they go out, they raise their funds, but they're the management team that's managing the assets themselves. And I've seen more of those kind of that the people are, going that route. And it seems mm -hmm. like a lot of them have some background that maybe they were, you know, sponsored by private equity in the past. And now they're kind of just trying to go directly out there and do some of that themselves, raise the funds, and then they'll manage the assets. So it's been interesting kind of seeing some of that shift as well. And then like I say, just some of the deal structures and how they're, they're going about it has, has changed a little bit. But Matt, anything to add on that? Yeah, I'd say that there's, there's, I'm glad that nobody's saying that there's not private equity money out there. I'd be more concerned that people would have that opinion. Uh, mm -hmm. But because the truth is there is, and it's just in my, my point of view, it seems like there's a lot more competition among them now than there was a year ago. Yeah. Uh, so, and even that's a, that's a really a year good. ago. Yeah. Like you're saying, even just a year ago. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, we, we hear, we hear that, you know, there's just no money available for, for natural gas, uh, natural gas investment a year ago. And I, I'd, I'd say that is definitely not the case now. In fact, we've seen several uh, people who we, you know, we support or clients of ours who look for assets and lose deals and just because there's a lot of competition out there. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's, there's, there's a, uh, there's a hedging component of this too that's really important because it, it allows uh, these private equity firms to make more aggressive deals. For example, like if you're looking at a property and you know that, like say it's a natural gas property, mm -hmm. and you know that, uh, hey, uh, at the current curve, 
or let's just say, yeah, if the credit curve, I could make a 20% rate of return on the asset. Uh, but I also know that if prices slip lower between, you know, whenever I sign this deal, if prices were to slip lower, then my valuation is in trouble. Well, if you have a team that can immediately go out and hedge those prices uh, for, you know, a big chunk of the economic life of that, of that, of that asset, then uh, you can be more aggressive in your bid because you know that you can lock that price in on the same day. And we've seen that happen a lot where on oil and gas, where, uh, you know, they, they're over, you know, it's always, always working overnight. These bankers like working all night, working in. So they're just like, you know, sleepy eyed, crazy haired, you know, in the morning and saying, all right, well, we're going to close today. Like, what, what price can I get today? And you're That's like, the well, uniform of the oil field. Come on. <laughs> it's, I, yeah, we're, all, we're all in the same boat sometimes. Uh, but yeah, and then they'll have to, you know, they're, they're able to sharpen the pencil and say, okay, this is going to be my, this is going to be my bid same day, get the, uh, get all the hedges off. And that way you've secured your valuation. So mm -hmm. I hope to think that, uh, you know, a, an aggressive hedge advisor is helping increase the bids out there for assets that need to be sold. So across the board, you typically saw that rig count was an indication of health on our, in our industry and not necessarily the market side of our industry, just that we were growing, we were developing, we were, <laughs> we were still locating and finding, there was still some exploration to a certain extent. Um, people were interested in their assets. We also saw, you know, the fall of the money was the ducks. So you follow what the large majors were doing in order to know when the great big, uh, you know, new basin was going to reemerge. We did it when we saw the death of the Bakken. Uh, we've done it when we've seen the birth of the Delaware. It's, it's a fairly easy cycle to happen, but last week alone, rig count was at historic lows. Uh, I think the final number was something below 275. We're seeing ducks grow more so than, uh, than you know, decrease. Usually you see the, the healthy fluctuation still, I think, pretty consistent around, what is it, 8,000 or something like that across the United States. But you know, everything seems to be standing still. So what is happening to our service side of this industry from y'all's perspective? And what are going to be the new indications of health from the operator service tech companies? I see Matt, Matt's getting on the computer. I know. He's queuing it up. He's queuing it up. Uh, you know, I don't have a chart on that, but uh, I think I have a way to... The fake out, head fake there. Uh, I do have something. He's else checking my two sixty six rig count. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that is my personality. I have to admit. So here, what I'd say about the rig count is, you know, the rig count used to be a, a good indicator of activity. I think in the mm -hmm. short term, it's not as good of an indicator anymore. Uh, first of all, because you just you got a rig out there, you're just basically punching holes in the ground. You're not saying how many wells are going to be turned to sales. Um, there's a really interesting one out there. Primary Vision, the company, um, is uh, they do a uh, do a, a frac called frac spread count, which is the number of completion crews that are active in the in the country. That's and, gone way uh, down. You, oh, you way down. I mean, <laughs> it was something like 350 by their count uh, just about six months ago. Yeah. And uh, the most most recent number I saw was under 60. Yeah. So, you know, um, that's, that's way down. You want to talk about yeah. rigs being down, like number of completion crews and why it's because, you know, at you know, 30, I think we're getting up to close to a price that would encourage some development, but, um, you know, 30, $30, $20, you're not going to go and try to try to complete a well at the moment. And mm -hmm. so like, and I do want to share this because I, I think that the services industry is, is a, is a big flag to watch. 
so th this is our factor matrix and we our style is you know we don't have like a bank price deck where we're saying like we think that you know price is going to be 46 dollars next next year we're risk managers so we're always thinking about in terms of probability risk you and this is for our crude oil factor matrix and what we tried to do is to identify what we think are the most prominent variables affecting uh, oil prices right now and the ones that are likely to affect oil prices in the near future and we put them on a, on a sheet we share this with clients so that we can have a good discussion like i said i pick a fight and uh, and i always ask for things that i'm missing so if you have anything it's that i'm think you think i'm missing or anybody's watching this think i'm missing something let me know because i want to put it on <laughs> oh they will <laughs> do it they will <laughs> i'll fight you <laughs> um, Get the box and no, I would on. love to talk to him. Yeah. So the way this works is if you, if something is down here at the bottom, it's I could, wish I could work PowerPoint. If it's down here at the bottom, it's uh, <laughs> it's something that's priced in. All right. And if it's up here at the top, we think it's more of a more of a a, a surprise. You know, the, the market might know about it, but they're not giving it the proper weight. And so, for example, you know, the big green one right here, uh, COVID nineteen demand in the state of the economy. You know, that's mm -hmm. the big bearish demand side thing that we think is, you know, kind of halfway priced in right now. Could get worse, could get better. But one of the things that we've been identifying is that even if you have a rally in oil prices, that it, it breaks through those thresholds that we saw on the on the on the pyramid that we showed, and you get up into the prices that encourage more development growth capex. Okay. The things that we're concerned about is, and this is actually a bullish thing, is that this oil field service and capital markets, if, if prices do go up that high, will you be able to find money fast enough? Or if you're a public company, will you be rewarded for drilling new wells so that you can respond to that price? But the other question is, yeah, let's say that your yeah, prices go up and I can find the money. Will you have enough services there to be able to respond, to the, respond with, uh, with a new well? And you know we got it up high. We don't have it as something that's like an imminent thing that's gonna you know send prices way up. But it's something to watch because these people they they're they're furloughed. I mean, some of these are friends and family of mine. They're, they're furloughed. Mm -hmm. They're at home. They're they're questioning their involvement in this industry anymore. Oh yes. You know, um, and if they're if if you have equipment, that's just on the people side. On the equipment side, you know, it's in warm storage. It's off. It's offline. So how do you get you? Know, Equipment into the field, the people into the field, properly trained. Can they respond quickly? And I think it's a, I think it's a big doubt. And so, if you can't respond with the oil field services in a in a timely fashion, then this leaves some upward price skew in 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 oil, uh, because you could have this lag between whenever there is the demand, mm -hmm. um, and when you can actually provide the supply. So one of the things that was being asked is that. A lot of people, those being the operator side, some of the people I pinged for questions are saying, well, you know, when we start seeing a return in demand and therefore a increase in price similar to what we're seeing now, it's still $40, but people are optimistic. They're grabbing on to the little nuggets and they're staying, you know, positive about the industry. Where they're kind of negative is that they are then hit with service side fees because service side tends to stay and again technology or actual physical like drilling a well fracking workovers what have you they tend to stay more guarded for longer periods of time and thus you get an inflated rate of engagement and that also produces an environment where operators don't want to move forward because they think they're being cheated in some capacity and i i completely understand that so how do you negotiate your way through the settling of supply and demand, because to people without looking at charts, we are so far down on our demand um, 
I guess our history of demand and where we fall within the, the degrees of error on it. Um, and that's what's leading way towards this sort of battle or this continuing reactionary battle with service companies. And thus you get in a cycle where nothing gets done. So are people just reacting to headlines or are we better than we think we are despite these weird dips? You know, let's just remember that you know, supply and demand affects every link in the supply chain. Mm-hmm. And um, and anything that can change its uh, its supply and demand and it, it will respond to to price, and so uh, services are one of those things. And so what I would tell people is that you know when prices go down low, who's on the tip of the spear? It's the oil field services guys who are on the tip of the spear. They're the first ones to feel the pain. Uh, they're the first ones who get their contracts canceled. The first ones that get told no. So um, what you can expect is that, yeah, when you have to bring it back, when you have to renew that demand for oil field services, and that goes for completion crews to whatever, whatever it would be, uh, you would expect that you're starting from a level of lower supply and prices could escalate right there. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, from our point of view, what we're trying to figure out is the effect on price. And I think anytime that you add a cost uh, in the supply chain, you tend to raise the overall price. Uh, and that's why we identify it as a, as a bullish factor. Is, okay. is, uh, so in the long run, it's actually doing us a favor, even though we might hate it when we're signing the MSA. <laughs> you know, I'd say if you have access to the services, if you're one of those who uh, does not have trouble finding what you need, then you're in a position to, uh, to be able to better take advantage of higher prices if they happen. Yeah. Yeah. Fabulous. I will tell my boss that because he was none too pleased the other week. <laughs> Um, so we are looking at, you know, a new, a new landscape completely in the oil and gas sector. Some argue we've never seen anything like this before, but what most people do agree on is in some way it's OPEC's fault. Um, so I'm kind of curious from y'all's perspective, we, over the years, we claim that OPEC is no longer a thing. They're inactive. They they can't keep it together. And then something like this happens and all of a sudden OPEC was more powerful than we gave them credit for. So can we rely on OPEC? Should our industry being, you know, the privatized oil and gas out there, should we be negotiating ourselves to a point that OPEC's reaction is our future? Or what can we be doing in order to better, I guess, protect ourselves, separate ourselves, or honestly, be better players in the global economy that is oil and gas because you're not going to get away from global conventional production. And right now, America does not control the global tap. So how do we play with OPEC successfully and for long term? Well, um, I know you're going to be shocked that I'm going to say this, but uh, you hedge. That's how you do it. You, you don't you don't let them uh, like OPEC dictate what sort of price you're going to receive, and you do that by systematically adding hedges across time to make sure that you're protected and can do something crazy. I mean, like we this the, the problem we had with OPEC this year was really just a matter of time uh, because they had been holding back production, they had been holding it back quite a bit. And uh, demand was growing really fast, and that was supporting the market too. And I'll show you a chart here. I know you're shocked that I've got a chart ready to go. <laughs> um, but I'll show you a chart. Like, first of all, on our factor matrix again, I mean, what did we have on here? We got OPEC, OPEC on here twice. Yeah. I mean, that's, the, that's, that's how much attention it needs. I see you have needs. OPEC Plus, so you've joined this, this uh, new trend of OPEC that's right. Plus. You're, you're, you're real high on that name, aren't you, Catherine? I cannot stand that name. <laughs> I, I can't I can't say Glopec. 
The global <laughs> OPEC. OPEC. I can't yeah, say global OPEC. OPEC. Um, so we got it on here twice, and we got it as a bullish mostly priced in for their, their new round of production cuts, right? I mean, they got 10 million barrels a day offline or something like that. I'll show you a chart in a second. Um, but the other thing we got is, they, so that's bullish priced in. So it can, hardly, it can hardly make the market any better because not only is Russia, Saudi Arabia, other OPEC uh, back in on the deal, but they also stuck it to Nigeria and Iraq and told them they have to make up for their past cheating. I hate to call it cheating, but you know, but, you know, they 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 didn't meet the quota. So, uh, so it's I like, how could that not word. be priced in? <laughs> yeah, from That's outside fair. looking at it, that's fair. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't know. But but on the other side, though, is like, okay, so that's all priced in. Well, what could happen in the future? And that is you've got a bunch of supply that they could bring online. So, for example, like here's here's total OPEC production like per month. And the red line is what how Mm -hmm. Brent ended the month. But you can see back in 2018, remember when uh, we were supposed to put all these sanctions against Iran, like in late 2018? Yes. And everybody thought that production was about to come off in a huge way. And then at the last, I mean, the final hour. The, the 11th hour, it was, uh, they, they, they kicked the uh, Trump administration, kicked those sanctions down six months down the road. Well, what did Saudi Arabia do? They decided they were going to produce, and they bumped up total OPEC production to about 33 million barrels a day. Big mistake, because what happened well, they, to price? they didn't get the memo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so if you ever think that OPEC has superior you know, market analysis, no. No. I would say that I'd say we have access to, to information that they would love to have. Uh, but <laughs> you saw you saw that prices came right down because they miscalculated. But here's what I want to point out. It's like recently the target for their production is around, you know, 24 million barrels a day. Correct. If they have produced 33 in the recent past, and let's just knock Iran off that and say that they don't count this time, then there's, you know, if you did include, I'm sorry, Iran, if you did include Iran, then maybe they could produce like 10 million barrels a day in the near term. But let's just be more conservative and say it's seven, seven million barrels a day that they could bring back online over the course mm-hmm. of a few months. That I, I would argue that in the total demand in the, in the, for the whole uh, globe before COVID-19 was about 100 million barrels a day and production was about 100 million barrels a day. So they've got 7% there just waiting in the wings. What I would argue is that if you have a bullish point of view for crude oil in 2021, it is required that you assume that OPEC will keep their deal together. That's the way I would say that. Okay. Because if you add 7 million barrels a day to this, uh, to this supply demand balance in 2021, you don't get $40. So the, <laughs> the other thing about what, what OPEC has done recently is, you know, over the last two years, like 2017, 2018, and really 2019, I guess, let's give it three years, is if you listen to their rhetoric, they mm-hmm. talked about how oil prices, uh, you know, that uh, first of all, they lamented the fact that U.S. shale was in, was in the mix. And they, they said that we need to systematically reduce the global supply to draw down global inventories so that if you don't have too much oil inventory, then the price will reflect what's going on with supply and demand. Mm-hmm. They have totally changed the rhetoric on that. The rhetoric now is, seems to be, it's a month-to-month deal. You can't count on us to continue doing this past the next several months. You have no idea what we're going to do in 2021. You have Russia that came kicking and screaming to this new deal. Yep. You have barely get compliance with the rest of OPEC. And you have Saudi Arabia and Russia in the last several months showing that they are willing to let something fall, let a deal fall apart. So what do we have now? We have a deal through July, I think. Maybe it's a little longer. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But I would say that when we go back to that price chart, remember when we were looking at prices, you know, hovering around 40 to $42 for the next couple of years, I think the market's getting it right. They're looking out there and saying, there's this huge risk that OPEC could end this deal again. 
and we would have that supply right back online. So let me ask you a question. I, I just became the host. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> let, 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 let me just ask you this. If, 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 if Brent pricing or w, let's just say WTI, if WTI got to $50, mm-hmm. do you think OPEC would keep this deal? So that's like the million dollar question, right? Because it didn't become a, it, it wasn't necessarily a price war at, uh, in the beginning, I think it was, but then it became a, who's bigger chief on campus? Who's going to let the other one fail first? And Saudi was not willing to lose to Russia. Russia's been stockpiling. I think people could back it to five or six years ago, they really started this uh, initiative. And then, you know, you see Mexico, so that plus part of OPEC, <laughs> OPEC plus, uh, trying to jump in on market share. And that's what it all goes back to is when you see one fail, the other jumps in for market share. Again, going back to the control of global conventional production, um, the real, real wild card is shale. And that is why, you know, West Texas has become... Um, kind of the thorn in their side because we never ramp down. And that goes back to my argument of sometimes we tend to shoot ourselves in the foot because we are privatized and we do want that market share, that pipeline out there. So if it goes back up to 50, do you think they're going to keep their deal? I think it depends on who challenges them and what the end goal is because the end goal really isn't always about sales. Sometimes it's about, you know, global control in terms of, who has the bigger seat at the table? I think that's fair. I, I'd, I'd say, I'd, and I want to add on to your to your U.S. Uh, shale argument too, is that if uh, I think that OPEC knows very well some of the things that Aegis knows, where you know we I'd say we have a very good representative sample of uh, of producers in this country, the size of the book, the variety of different producers that mm-hmm. that we counsel, and I, I think that if you look back at our trade history, whenever uh, WTI went to fifty two dollars. That seemed like a major threshold of our clients who could, uh, who wanted to add hedges, who wanted to lock in prices. That's kind of where it started. At around 56, 57, you saw a huge amount of interest in, in new hedges. And that to, to us, and we also get to see, you know, whenever people change their production, uh, their production uh, forecast for the next couple of years. And around that level is when these producers were adding new hedges to be able to grow. Um, and I think OPEC knows that at some level too, that if you let WTI prices get over 50, you're going to mm-hmm. encourage growth. And so back to your point, like, are you willing to give up market share? I, I think there's got to be a, 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 a contingent in, inside of OPEC that realizes that and doesn't want prices to go over 50. In fact, mm-hmm. I think the, uh, the number's probably lower than that. So to y'all's point, even if they are hedged, can the U.S. market, that being our U.S. conventionals, our shale, our gas assets, can they survive under a continuous $50, uh, I guess, $50 cap set by OPEC? Uh, So, uh, yeah, I'm glad that you said that, Um, (laughs) not me. Uh, but I'll just go ahead and I'll just go ahead and use it. You know, the thing about uh, the thing about like uncertainty is that it, it tends to introduce volatility into prices. And if you're prepared for it, you can make volatility your friend. So uh, if you know that, say, you're on some sort of financial threshold where, you know, under 50, you don't really hit your the rate of return that you would like to have over 50, you feel like you're doing a lot better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that you can, if you have a plan together where you know what those price thresholds are and you have a hedge advisor who is on your side waiting to execute, then you develop those plans in advance. 
you have the people, the processes, and the technology in place, that's your hedge advisor like us, and uh, mm -hmm. to be able to execute. And then whenever you get the opportunity, you execute quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, even if, even if $50 is say like some sort of cap that, that OPEC thinks should be out there, that doesn't mean that the prices are going to stay at that level. You'll get opportunities to hedge uh, when prices are temporarily strong. And that's what I would advise people to look for. So on that advice, you know, this is, this is quite a whammy to the shale environment and you're seeing the geos and the reservoir engineers and some of management start pushing back and saying, we need to relearn the conventional game. We need to learn about development, not just well, uh, like a single well and hope we do well in that regards. So you don't see this uh, downturn as the death of the shale market uh, as, as it sounds. I I'm tend to be some, somewhere in between pessimists and optimists, but how is the shale game going to change as a result of everything that we've seen with or without hedging? Yeah. Well, one is, and I know you've heard this word before in this argument before, not the word, but the argument, and that is, you know, consolidation. I, I think that yeah. there will be, we've seen it among our clients. Um, so How's that going? Our, <laughs> you know, so, so we, we are in the fortunate position where our clients were, were you know, well, well hedged. And so a lot of the decisions that they've made over the last couple of months haven't been, you know, um, many times were not emergency measures, they were able to okay. psychologically distance themselves from what's going on in the market and just make a wise decision about what the, what the new market is going to look like. Which is fair. And, and I'm glad about that. But as far as how things are going to change, um, number one is that I think that hedging is going to be more important than it was in the past because if there is this some sort of theoretical who knows where it is cap on price because OPEC has uh, could at any time dump this, this, this uh, these barrels back into the market, then you need to be prepared for that and you need to know where your thresholds are. Um, the other thing I would say is that uh, hedging becomes important because the margins might be thinner. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you I think, think we're already seeing that part, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that's when you, uh, that's when having the, the, the processes, the technology, being able to know exactly where you are in your financials, exactly where your hedge portfolio is, how much uh, room you have to add hedges, how much do you need to have, what is your bank telling you you have to do versus how much of it is discretion, mm -hmm. and uh, knowing what limit orders that is, what prices do you need to, to have ready to go in case you hit those prices, that's going to become very important. Um, and I would say that we have the technology to do that. So that's the, that's the way we've built the company is to have the tech to be able to pull that off. But uh, yeah, it's going to, I don't think that, even though I do think that Cal, you know, say 21, 22, 22 prices, I don't think mm -hmm. that 41, $42 is fair. I don't hmm. think that's the right, mar the right price for what's happening in the market right now. I do think it'll tend to go a little bit higher, but I just also recognize that there's this, just, you know, the sword hanging over our heads, uh, yeah. which is OPEC that we just need to really be aware of. And there's also the demand side issues that haven't quite solved themselves yet. Rob, what do you think in terms of business development and what you're seeing coming out of West Texas right now? Out of West Texas or just, just well, in shale. general? Yeah. Shale. <laughs> um, it's everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's still, there's still a lot of, of, undeveloped positions that are, that are sitting out there that are kind of on on uh pause right now but i think that you know you're gonna see especially if we get into um you know a, a period where where there's 
some it's not as volatile i guess you know that, that there's some stability and and i think you're kind of seeing some of it now that um you know as we've gotten and who would think that like people are uh, you know optimistic in the high 30s and low 40s but i mean i can say from a standpoint of I've had a lot of inbound calls coming to me here recently from folks that, you know, are more uh, ready to start thinking about hedging again or, or ready to start thinking about it now. Um, you know, and I think that that's just that that goes to show that, you know, there's still going to be cap capex that goes into these plays and, and there's inventory that's sitting there. Um, you know, I think the landscape is going to look different. I think that there's still a wave of consolidation that still needs to happen. And mm -hmm. a lot of that is going to be with the big shale players. And we're already we've seen some of it. But my personal, you know, my personal thought is that there's there's definitely more to come. And um you know, I think that uh, it's just, it's interesting. Like I say, I think that that I've been intrigued by seeing the inbound calls coming from some of the shale players that, that they're ready to, to, you know, start thinking about mitigating risk and looking at mitigating risk on their forecasted production, um, you know, and again, as absurd as it sounds, you know, in, in a price environment that it looks optimistic in the high 30s to low 40s you know mm -hmm. so it's you gotta do. it's it's yeah, yeah the game has changed right i mean it's just the, those those kind of thresholds i guess have changed for some of these folks but um i think the landscape is going to look a lot different a year from now um just in the number of players and how much consolidation there there's there's been in some of these big shale plays. And I mean, we're seeing it in some of the names here in our hometown, Catherine here in Denver, and there's been some consolidation and um, you know, there's going to be, be more of that to come. So y'all have taken us through so much today and it's been so helpful. I, I greatly appreciate it. Um, looking at the market, you know, like you said, if we see negative again, and there's always that looming threat that we will, especially in this day and age, you're, you're telling people not to panic so long as they're properly set up. So looking at the oil market, the energy market, and what everyone's asking is, when do we get above 45? When is that actually going to happen? What are y'all's top indicators that you encourage your clients to look at to understand not just the health of the oil field, but the health of the oil market so that we bring everything together and see that future growth happening? Matt's got a crystal ball that uh, it's just this great tool that no. <laughs> it's a ahead, series Matt. of crystal balls. It's complicated. <laughs> it's mathematical. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I can tell you something. There's a difference between the short term and the long term health. I mean, short term, um, you know, there's 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 a lot of uh, government statistics and uh, things that you can find in the market that will tell you how how things are doing uh, in the short term. And I don't mean like charting tools. I'll tell you about those. Uh, longer term is really like most of what we do is counseling clients on how to hedge going out, you know, two mm -hmm. to three years. So okay. uh, we tend to think shorter term about uh, opportunities in the market in that way. So you're done so, with 2022. <laughs> yeah, we're as well. Yeah, we're, you're done with 2020 oh, yeah, yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to see 2024. I'm done with this. Uh, <laughs> things will be so much better in 2024. 
Yeah, the, uh, some of the things that I look at, uh, I, I think one of the, the very important things right now is the level of inventories and not just like how much is in inventory, it's where and are we building or drawing. And I can give you an example is like in the U.S., you know, WTI futures are delivered to Cushing, Oklahoma. Like whenever mm -hmm. you trade at WTI futures, that is required delivery and taking delivery in Cushing, Oklahoma at certain facilities. But that's not the only price marker in the U.S. I mean, there's some very liquid ones in Midland, Houston, southern Louisiana. There's a few in the Rockies, and they're important too. Uh, and what I'd point out is that uh, one of the things that we look at a lot is the, uh, the, whether inventories are rising or falling in each one of those markets. So in Cushing, inventories are falling fast because people are trying not to send oil to Cushing because it got into such a bad way back in April. Where, where things are in, increasing now is on the Gulf Coast. Yes. So like yeah, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, that stretch, that is yeah. still... Mississippi's Ka coming back. Catherine's hood. <laughs> yeah, it, it, well, okay, yeah, you're, you lived in the S or you're from the SPR's backyard too. So you've got <laughs> like inventory builds in commercial storage in the Gulf Coast and in SPR. And if SPR wasn't, wasn't there, you'd actually see bigger inventory builds in the Gulf Coast. So that's the new one that I really want to watch uh, mm -hmm. to see if uh, the supply demand balance is flipping to where we need to take oil out of storage. That's going to be a huge milestone. Uh, the other one that I watch on a, on a weekly basis is refinery runs. So we can talk okay. about like gasoline, diesel, all that. You can see gasoline demands coming back, diesel's demands coming back. But when you get down to it, there's only two ways that you can dispose of crude oil in this country. You can either put it in a refinery or put it on a ship. That's all you can do. If you don't have that demand, you got to put it in storage. And so we need to watch very closely how refineries are uh, responding to, uh, to margins in their world. So Matt, Rob, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. As I said in the beginning, this has opened the doorway to a lot of people voicing their opinions, but what the oil field needs now is honest, transparent, and actionable rhetoric. And I think that's what you guys were able to provide today. I know I learned a lot. I very much appreciate the insights. Anytime you have some insider trading to like throw my way, please feel free. But otherwise, no, we don't. Uh, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> they're both saying no automatically. That's so disappointing. Um, but one of the things I also want to point out, Rob, you set me up with um, the Aegis notification I get twice daily about the market. And that is one of the things I look at constantly and helps me just kind of keep abreast of what everything's or what's happening really across the oil patch in general, because we tend to stop thinking outside of our own assets. And so I would encourage anyone to figure out a way to get on that mailing list because it's pretty gosh darn helpful. Um, but otherwise, Matt, thank you so much for bestowing the uh, knowledge today. Rob, thanks for the BD insight. And I can't wait to get you guys on in the future, especially when we crack $45. It's <laughs> our pleasure, Catherine. Yeah. Thank you so much for inviting us. Really <laughs> appreciate it. Yeah.